Um, as we start with our letter to Romans, we're going to do a little bit of background information for you, and we're just going to dive a bit into the first portion of chapter one. We're not going to tackle the whole book tonight. We're probably not even going to get to all the things you could discover about the book of Romans during the series. I know, shocking. But this is one of the most studied, talked about, preached about letters and books actually in the entire of our Christian canon. This is the one that people tend to talk about the most, want to speak about the most, delve into the most, use the most out of context. All of those fun things happens with this beautiful letter to Rome. So let's just start right here. Our first few verses we're going to jump on in. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. By the way, that's a churchy word, apostle, isn't it? Do you guys know what it means? Just one sent, a sent person, called to be the person sent to do this, okay? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set up, sorry, one more thing. You know, that's not Jesus' last name, right? Okay, just so we know, he, there wasn't Mr. and Mrs. Christ, and then they had a child, and he carried that name. The word Christ is descriptive, and it simply means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah, Mashiach, which we say Messiah in the anglicized form. And then in Greek, it's Christos, and we say Christ. Cool? All right. Let's start again. Ready? Paul. Anyone know who that guy is? All right. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good opening, right? When you show up at work, you start with that kind of preamble in all of the beginning of your email and missives out, yeah? Let me just go through the whole thing. It's actually really important, and we'll get to a lot of it, but this is how Paul opens this letter, and then he continues on. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son, is my witness that without ceasing, I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will, I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. This is Paul writing to the Romans, but he's not been to Rome yet. Um, In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Hence, my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The title of our message tonight is Not Ashamed. Who grew up with this 
bumper sticker or sticker or something somewhere. Anybody? Just, it's okay. You can raise your hand. We won't judge you. If you had a, I am not ashamed, right? Verse anybody? Like that was the thing. And then maybe you also knew um, like the Newsboys song. I'm not ashamed to let you know. I'm dating myself a lot. Some of you are like, I don't know who the Newsboys are. That's okay. If you were evangelical adjacent, there was a group. Um, I think they were like from Australia or New Zealand or somewhere, right? They had like really cool accents and then they still exist. I know they're great. And they would sing a song called Shine. They also sang a song called um, They Don't Serve Breakfast in Hell. There's a lot going on with the newsboys. Um, but the coolest thing was when you went to their, the Christian festivals, you went to the concerts, the guy who was the drummer would do this thing. <laughs> I was like, Kevin is so cool. I always thought it was really cool. It's, it's so cheesy now. Um, he would, strapped in, would lift up, the platform would lift up, and they would rotate it. Did anybody see this? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And he would continue to drum upside down, suspended and then they would pull the kit back around and was like, this is the time. Everybody sit tight. The newsboys right now are not ashamed to drum upside down. It's going to be awesome. So if you went to Christian music festivals or whatever, you had t-shirts that said you weren't ashamed. You put the stickers on your guitar case that you played um, with fervent hope that you might someday be a youth pastor that was cool. Like all of those things, you learned your three chords faster snow. I might be talking about myself. Um, Okay. Then I met Kevin. I was like, oh, that's what playing the guitar actually sounds like. I'll stop doing that now. (laughs) I'll just sing, backup sing for you. A lot of us also know verses from Romans because we grew up learning the Romans road. Maybe you took an evangelical conference where you sat down and and the person up front told you, this is how you're going to lead your best friends to Christ. This is how you're going to be able to have these conversations. And I just want to say right now that I don't want to diss any of that because if that's how any one of us got in this room, then you and I together have experienced some taste of hope. Some, some verses that gave us hope that brought us to a point where we thought there is something beyond my own human depravity. There is something beyond my own sin. There's hope for salvation. There's hope for something to come that's better than what I see right now. And I can experience this salvation. And that is wonderful. I want to argue, though, if this also now makes you uncomfortable. Anybody? uncomfortable with any of this now? There's a lot of nodding in our wonderful sparky church. Yeah, that's okay too. But my hope is that by the end of tonight, let's say this is a bold hope, or at least by the end of this series, this might make you a little less uncomfortable, not because it gets it a hundred percent right, but because it's actually not a hundred percent wrong. It's just that it's so much better than just this. The Romans road is not talking about your personal salvation and my personal salvation and how we get a golden ticket into heaven. It's not talking about that. It's so much better than just that. And that's why I'm going to argue that by the end of this, you would be able to maybe at least admit to somebody that you did have this bumper sticker verse somewhere because I am praying that at the end of our study in Romans, you and I too together will say, you know, I am not ashamed. I might be ashamed of a flat one-dimensional expression of a deep and rich gospel. I might be ashamed of awkward conversations where I tried to lead my parents to Christ, even though they've been going to church for 20 years, right? Like those things might be regrets, 
But guilty, yes, right? Oh no, that hit right here. Not you, people in your row. Um, so that's okay. But I actually believe that what Paul is saying here, the gospel that he is sharing with us, is incredible and one that should make us with great joy say, I have no shame to tell you the truth of this beautiful story. So let's talk about Rome. Now, I understand there's been a meme working around the TikToks and the other things lately, where if you go and you speak to any um, warm-blooded male in North America and you say to them, how often do you think about Rome? They're like, daily, baby, daily, like I talk about. So do anybody know there was like this meme going around on TikTok where people, yeah, I'm not on TikTok. I'm TikTok adjacent, and I heard about this in the news. Um, But they were like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Daily, why? I'm sorry. So now there's product based upon this meme. You can buy stickers. You can buy sweatshirts, t-shirts on Amazon. You can buy a pillow called Holy Roman Empire and give it a one star. That's all. um, It's not holy. It's not Roman and it's not an empire. Like that's what this says underneath the bottom of the pillow. A lot of people think about Rome, talk about Rome, consider the Roman Empire often. And when we talk about the Roman Empire, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, this entity out of Rome, a power that sort of went out and conquering, took over a whole bunch of the world and reached north towards England, reached down south into portions of Africa, reached far, far east towards Mesopotamia and all the way out west towards Spain. I just want to say that we are impressed by the Roman Empire because we live in the west and a lot of this culture and influence ended up shifting and changing the entire world that we live in today. But if you really want to be impressed, I just want to point out that the Polynesians did this And they did this in BC, like 1300 BC, 3000 BC from Taiwan coming Philippines. So if you want to talk about like expansive conquering peoples, you might want to do a Polynesian study at some point, but we live in a Western world and also we don't have a letter to the Polynesians, right? So I was, this was all for you, June. This is all for you, but look. Samoa. Look, look, here we go. That's right. 800 BC. I mean, this is an empire, right? This is the empire we're talking about. We just needed Paul to write a letter to the Polynesian people, and then we would be able to talk about it a bit more. Okay, but let's talk about Romans for tonight. Let's talk about the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why of this letter. So Paul. Paul, also known as Shaul, Shaul is his Hebrew name, meaning Saul. Um, We translate it Saul when we talk about it. So after King Saul in the Bible, the name means you asked for, asked for, you asked for it kind of thing. Shaul has two names. God didn't change his name. He didn't have that transformative experience. Anybody taught that he had a transformative experience, then God changed his name. There's nowhere in the text that that is indicated in any way. It's likely that, like many of us, who live in more than one culture, we have a name that can be pronounced easily in one culture, and then we have the name of our native tongue-speaking culture. So Paul, Shaul, was his given name. He was a trilingual Jewish-Roman citizen from Tarsus, which is located in southeastern Turkey. He's a contemporary of Seneca and Cicero. He's one of the major public intellectuals of the ancient world. Um, N.T. Wright, who loves Paul, loves the Book of Romans, and definitely will be quoting him a whole bunch during this entire series, is basically saying that he thinks that Paul is one of the best thinkers of the ancient world, period, bar none, and that people who want to study the ancient Near Eastern world and, and the Roman world should absolutely study Paul, whether or not they're interested in theology. That he can stand on his own, according to all of those ancient philosophers, like toe-to-toe. 
Paul lived at the confluence of three great worlds, the Jewish world, which he never abandoned. He continued to worship in Jerusalem. He continued to make sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. He did this even after Jesus was resurrected. He said, I am a Jew, not I was. He said, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, not I was. He was very proud of his lineage. And he also was part of the Greek world. He could debate the cynics and the Stoics. He could speak their language. Paul knows the larger Greek world. He knows the poets. He knows the playwrights. He can lecture with them. He can argue with them. And he also knows the Roman world he grew up in. He grew up in the cult of Rome. He knew the story that the emperor was telling about itself. He knew the story that the empire told about itself. And he understood all of that. So he was trilingual, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, he would be able to go around the world and have conversation with all. Now, when we start to talk about this letter, we have to at least first note that thinking about a letter, what is also called an epistle that Paul is going to send to a whole bunch of churches and communities, and in this case, the one in Rome, it is hard to understand this type of literary genre. Of all the literary genres, Dr. Raymond Collins says, it is the epistolary genre that's the most conditioned by the coordinates of time and space, historical and relational circumstances. They are ad hoc compositions whose essential import relates immediately and directly only to the situation that dictated their composition. It's like listening to one side of the phone conversation and having to imagine the occasion or the need for that, those things to be said. Now, it's a little bit less with the, gospel, with the letter to Romans, and we'll explain why, than it might be for Timothy and specifically Titus and Ephesus and the letter to Ephesians and others. Because Romans is Paul's like, letter that he's writing towards the end of his ministry. And he's going to include it to a community he's actually not been to before. There's going to be some specific information in it. But it's not as specific as we get like in the letter to the Corinthians. But it's important to at least note that there are things happening in the letter that you and I simply can't know. And the best of scholars have to guess at a little bit because they don't have the other side to correspondence or the other side that precipitated for the reasons why Paul did and said the things that he said. Now, we'll know some, but we can't know all. So we should just approach it with some humility. The epistles, the letters are very complex. They're entirely subject to space, time, language, community, and culture of not only the author, but also the recipients. And we're going to see in a minute that had Paul written a letter to Rome five years prior, it would be different than the letter he's writing at this point. Um, This is further complicated by all the various influences of first century Judaism in and outside of Jerusalem and Israel, as well as the diversity of the Greco-Roman world. Romans is Paul's longest and most systematic epistle, and as such, it's often taken to be primarily a theological treaty or position paper. People are like, you want to know Paul's theology? Let's look at Romans. And it's okay. That is not bad to do here at all. Roman is Paul's first letter as we read it in our New Testament. So if you open up your New Testament, you're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Then you go to the book of Acts, which tells you all about the things that the early church did. And as the book of Acts concludes with Paul in Rome, then we get to the first letter. Not Paul's first letter he wrote. The first letter just happens to be in the order of our New Testament canon, Romans. As a result, we are kind of reading all the rest of Paul's letters in context, in context of this foundational letter. 
Paul likely composed this letter to the Romans during his final three months stay in Corinth. You can read about this in Acts 20, not long before his departure for Jerusalem. The epistle to Romans, therefore, is the apostle's last epistle as a free man. And coming at this late stage in his life, it represents his most mature theological thinking, most developed theological thinking in his life. It's Romans, the letter, is heavily indebted to Paul's content covered in other epistles. He'll mention things in the letter to Romans that he's covered in other letters to the other churches. Things like justification by faith, works of the law, fatherhood of Abraham, Adam as the old order, Christ as the new order, the church, diversity, the need to exercise personal freedoms with consideration. Can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, yes, but only under this circumstance. Can you do this? Can you do that? Do you have to do this and that? Paul's covered a lot of that in a lot of other letters, some of which we We've covered and discussed here in various sermons here at Spark. So you should at least assume that as Paul is writing Romans, he has in mind the things he's already told other churches, the other letters that are already in circulation to the other churches, and he's kind of been developing. Remember, Paul is, by the way, not sinless. Okay, that's Jesus. Don't get confused. So he's allowed, and Jesus is too, by the way, to develop in his humanity and in his theological thinking and in his understanding of different subjects. Okay, because of all of this, Romans now is the standard by which all other Pauline epistles are measured for authenticity. Like when we look at any other letter that we think might be written by Paul, we're like, how does it measure up to Romans? Does it sound like him? Because we know this one comes from him. It's the longest Pauline epistle. It occupies that prominent place in our New Testament. It's easily the most theologically influential letter on the Christian faith, second only to the Gospels. By evidence of fact that I can put up just a couple of verses and many of us already have those memorized. We might not know when or how Paul wrote this letter, but we have a lot of verses memorized from Romans. Acts concludes with Paul in Rome, and then we begin to read Romans again, introducing us to the foundation of all Pauline thought. If you start to go through church history and church thought, and you're trying to understand where do people get these things from and how do it's like Augustine of Ippo, he heard a verse from Romans. He was like, got it. I'm a Christian now. Martin Luther, he like started first working through Romans. And that's what ends up leading to the Protestant Reformation, which is defined deeply by this letter to Rome. Karl Barth, Origen, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, John Wesley, all of them are interacting with Romans and numerous theological notions have been derived solely or in part from this letter. This is a big, hefty letter with a lot of influence still today on our world and on our church. Okay. Paul goes and visits Jerusalem. He's taken into custody. He's trans- before being transferred to Caesarea. He remains in prison for no less than two years there. Having appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen, he's taken to Rome. He remains in custody there for another two years until his execution around 62 CE, a few years before the Nero persecutions of 65 to 68. So Paul writes this letter to Rome before he goes to Jerusalem, and then all these things happen in his life. Cool? That's a bit. Now, let's do some more. Sit tight. You guys are only have to do all of this information gathering, this heavy lifting this week, and everybody else will preach nice stuff to you next week. Okay. What is happening to a Jewish community in Rome? First of all, why is a Jewish community in Rome? They're persecuted. Yes. They've been in the diaspora, cast out from Israel for a variety of different reasons, for a variety of different times, across centuries. 
And so when Alexander the Great has conquered and then when the Seleucids come in and that's our Hanukkah story and all these things, the Jews have been dispersed. Now there's a whole bunch that still live in Judea. That's why it has that name. And when Rome comes in and starts to take charge of that region in 63 BCE, now you have Jews who have grown up knowing the Roman Empire and have ease of travel to and from in various settings. And there's a whole bunch of Jews who are in Rome too. Now there were Jews throughout the world. I mean, people traveled freely. They would come home or go back to the temple in Jerusalem in order to be observant to the different holidays and festivals. But we had large Jewish communities in Alexandria and Egypt. We had large Jewish communities in different portions of Turkey. This is why Paul can go and travel, by the way, because there's a whole bunch of synagogues all these places. And he's showing up and he's going to go and preach and teach in these synagogues. Now, Julius Caesar granted Jewish communities the privilege to, quote, according to Josephus, live according to their ancestral laws. He's not really benevolent. We'll explain why he decides to do this. But basically, he says, like, listen, you've been here a long time. You have a very old text, right? We can see you've been here before the Romans. You got here first. We'll let you keep doing the things you want to do. So we'll give you some authority to interpret law and customs for your own community. We'll afford you an exemption from emperor worship. We're not going to make you bow down. Um, we will give you permission to have civic cults, just a religious term for your community group. We had the right to collect and distribute the temple tax so they could go and support Jerusalem still. Um, They were exempt from military service. That's a pretty big deal. Um, They had protection for Sabbath observances and festivals and holidays, etc. And synagogues and house communities then governed the Jewish community in religious, moral, legal, administrative, scriptural study, education, nearly every aspect of social religious interaction needed within a community. So as these synagogues existed throughout these communities where people gathered together, like the one we're standing in right now, a synagogue, um, it would provide independence within foreign rule and foreign land. So you could still be Jewish, still practice your religion while you lived in Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, Thessalonica, etc. Got it? And Rome permitted this. No problem. It's okay. You can do it. Now, the synagogue, today we might think that lots of houses of worship function primarily as just a place where you go and you worship. You come here, you sing songs, we teach to you, and then you go home, right? And we do some good work together, all these things. That's not really how it worked in the ancient world. It was really more like a community center, like the city hall, like a YWCA, a YMCA, where people could come and have all their needs met, where if there was a problem in the community, you could have somebody look through the Torah and try to figure out, okay, here's how we're going to solve that and sort that out so that there's conflict resolution, so that the widows could be taken care of, so that orphans could be taken care of. It was a community center where all of that worked together. So in Rome, though, there was a long tradition of anti-Semitism, not just in Rome, but actually in Egypt and throughout a lot of the world. And some Jews in Rome made it up towards the top of business and government. They were successful, and that spurred on more anti-Semitism, more Jew hatred. And so the Jews were regarded as strange people. They were allowed to practice their own religion only because Rome knew that they would choose death otherwise. That they would simply say, that's fine, you're going to make me worship the emperor, declare that the emperor is God, kill me now. Rome doesn't want to do that, right? 
They are always complaining. That's why Pilate is, by the way, in our gospel stories and other people are in charge over there. They're trying to deal with these rowdy Judeans who keep rising up and keep trying to throw off the shackles of the oppressor Rome. And they just finally get so hung up with it and just angry about it all. They just start crucifying Jews, one of whom you know. And so Rome is simply saying, we're not going to bother you. You get to go and do this stuff, not because we're benevolent and we're lovely and wonderful. We just know you'd rather die than do anything else, and we just can't handle the bloodshed anymore. But there's this guy, Claudius. He's an emperor, and he writes an edict because he's just done with them. And he expels the Jews from Rome. You guys got to get out. We don't like you. You can't be here anymore. And it's mentioned in Acts chapter 18 that after Paul, after this, Paul left Athens. He goes to Corinth, and there he found a Jew named Aquila from Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together by trade. They were tent makers. So there was a very strong Jewish community in Rome, and then they got kicked out. Now, was every Jew kicked out? I don't know. It's kind of hard to enforce those things. But essentially, a persecution took place, and the Jews were forced, forcibly removed, forced to leave their home in Rome, even though they had been a community there for a long time. There were actually at least, that we know of for sure, at least 11 synagogues found in Rome from this time, perhaps more. A lot of these might have been operating independently, like house churches. All of them were independent, by the way. Like, you didn't have like a giant you know, rabbi of the area that made all the synagogues comply to all of the things. This is what we think about this or this. They worked out with fear and trembling their interpretation of the Torah. So they're operating independently and righteous Gentiles, non-Jews, they're often called theosebes, God-fearers, also now start to come on into these various communities in Asia Minor in the Greco-Roman world. And like, oh, this is very interesting. We find it fascinating that you have a text. We think it's interesting what you do. We would like to kind of hang around. And Jewish communities were fine with this. They said, listen, all we're going to ask you to do is do the Noahide laws. Let's try to not, please don't drink blood. Okay, let's not do that. Don't drink blood. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And please abstain from sexual morality. But yes, you can come here and you can hang out. So most, if not all Jews in the first century, earnestly hoped for the promised restoration of Israel and the triumph of Israel's God as the one God of all nations, which meant Gentiles in the synagogue were often considered to be in various stages of becoming potential Jews, right? How else are the promises of God going to come to pass unless these Gentiles start to come in? Sure, you can come in. Now, this one's saying, I'll hang out here and I'll be a God-fearer, but I'm going to have to draw the line at that circumcision thing, not into it at all. And so they're like, that's fine. You take the, care, you take the title God-fearer, but you aren't going to do full conversion to Judaism. And other people might have decided to be a little bit further. I've also decided to abstain from pork. I'm not going to eat a bacon-wrapped scallop, at New York, like whatever it might have been, right? They, they go through their various, various adherences to try to be part of the community. Now, because of this edict, Gentile Christians have been running the Roman church slash synagogue slash community all by themselves. And now we're faced with the fact that these Jewish Christians are coming back. And they're returning to a shared community that the Gentile Christians have been running for the last five years that they've been away. 
Can you imagine a conflict or two? That is the occasion upon which Paul is writing this letter. And he is writing it to a community of believers who are both Jewish and Gentile, who are sharing space together. One group that's been kicked out for five years is now because Claudius is dead, so his edict is gone, and so now they get to return. And they get to, as they start to come back, they're like, what have you been doing? You're, are you meeting on a Sunday and not a Saturday? I mean, I, I don't think that's what we do, right? Or are you, have you decided, oh my gosh, what have you brought? Right? There's a whole conversation. And then the God-fearers, the Gentile believers that are there are like, hey, but this has been working out great for five years. We've sorted this through. Look how it's grown. It's been fine. It's fine. Just, you can come on in, but we still want to keep doing the things we've been doing. And there's a conflict. And when you start to read the letter to Rome, it would be of interest and a fun exercise to ask yourself, I wonder if right now Paul is directing this towards the Jewish believer or if Paul is directing this to the Gentile believer. Now, sometimes he will straight out say, hey, you, Gentiles, this is for you. Hey, you, Jews, this is for you. But other times, and this is the challenge of this letter, people would just know, right? You would just know, oh, he heard about that conflict that we had, and now it's being discussed, and now it's covered in the letter. They would just know. Now, also, it is suggested, and this year you're going to have to get all the way to Romans 16 for the end of this, and when we do, we'll talk about it in more detail. When Paul sends this letter, he doesn't send it without an interpretation. He sends a person to carry the letter, and this person, whenever you carried a letter, you didn't just go, uh, mail, delivery, and then just sign here, and then you get, you know, just drop off the package. You were the one sent by Paul to say to the community, are you ready? Here we go. It was probably, it's written in Greek, so I'm doing it this way. If it was written in Hebrew, you have to do it this way, okay? Here we go. And the letter reader reads the letter and could stop and look at you and say, Gentiles. Pull it together. You're only here because of the grace of God. Jews pulled together. They were supposed to be here the whole time, right? Like, so you can have this conversation. Guess who the carrier and the reader of the letter to Rome is? The one who can interpret and speak to both Jew and Gentile. Her name is Phoebe. (laughs) Such a good name. Somebody should name their kid that. Okay. So this is the occasion which brings about Paul's letter. This type of community, this type of person writing this type of letter to this community that is now experiencing these seismic shifts in cultural differences and dissonances and unity. How do we find unity in our spaces? What do we do now that we're all back here together? And that's why at the very beginning of this letter, Paul says, this is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, some of you might have some translations that will say something like to the Jew and then to the Greek. And it sounds as though it went first chronologically, like, hey, we'll give you guys some stuff and then we don't like you anymore. And now we're going to give it to these people. And that is not what the Greek says. Paul says very clearly, this is to the Jew. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's going to be important. See, Paul here in just that sense is acknowledging the salvation history, prior, historical priority of the Jews in his remark. But he also, in that same line, is refuting Jewish exclusivism when he adds, and also to the Greek. And there'll be more on this in Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. And it's important for this community in Rome, with these believers, these beloved followers of Jesus, to sort this through. In his book, New Testament and the People of God, N.T. Wright says this, the fate, But that the fate of the nations was inexorably and irreversibly bound up, nations is another word that we often translate Gentiles, was inexorably and irreversibly bound up with that of Israel, there was no doubt whatsoever. The point is of the utmost importance for the understanding both of the first century Judaism and of emerging Christianity. What happens to the Gentiles is conditional upon and conditioned by what happens to Israel. In terms of the first level of covenant purpose, the call of Israel has as its fundamental objective the rescue and restoration of the entire creation. From the very beginning of God's covenantal promises have been to the Jew, through the Jew, through Israel, to the world. That Israel might be a light to the Gentiles. That has been built in from the beginning. And this is the good news. This is the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed And this is what he is so joyously proclaiming to this beautiful community in Rome that is full of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And this is what he says. Paul, a servant of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, called to be apostle, to be sent, to be set apart for the good news, the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand. This is not something that just all of a sudden only happened in Jesus. This is something, Paul is saying, has been promised beforehand since the very beginning. And this is what I'm here to talk to you about. Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, there's been good news concerning his son. Who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I am not ashamed of this good news, of this gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Here's what Paul is saying in just a few short Passages and what he will proceed to continue to say throughout the entirety of the letter to Rome. There once was a garden. God dwelled with us. Humanity messed it up. So God said, okay, I will dwell with you in a temporary dwelling place called a tabernacle. But that didn't quite work. So now we will build a house. Because you took the ark into battle and you got it lost and it was weird. So now we're going to do that. But then that also is going to be destroyed. And when it's rebuilt, it'll be a little bit sad. And then Herod's going to get involved and it's going to be complicated. So ultimately, Isaiah 
Ezekiel, and of course Revelation, will look forward to a new dwelling place, a new Jerusalem, a new revelation that comes down. You see, a long time ago, Paul is saying, God made promises. God made a covenantal promise to Noah. God made a covenantal promise to Abraham. God made a covenantal promise to the Israelites at Sinai. And God made a covenantal promise to David and all of his descendants. That through these promises, God would be faithful to save. And God in God's faithfulness, this covenantal faithfulness that pulls through the text. God will set you free. And God will set you free for a purpose, Israel. You are set free to be a holy priesthood. But this promise is not only for you. It is universal. It is a universal promise. And it is included, all nations are included as the benefactors to be included in the blessing of this covenant. And so what's really happening, Paul says, and it surprised the heck out of him on the Damascus road. But sure enough, here's what he's going to tell us. There once was a garden, and there once was a tabernacle, and there once was a temple by Solomon, and then Christ came and dwelled, tabernacled among us. And now, as I've told the Ephesians, Christ now dwells with us and dwells in our hearts. And that is the new Jerusalem that we are looking forward to when Christ will again come and come crashing down this new Jerusalem and dwell with us again. And I am not ashamed to tell you this gospel, this good news, that all of you are included. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that the covenant that God made with Noah has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That the covenant that got made to Abraham, to Abraham and all of his descendants, to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, that the covenant God made when God took Israel and betrothed God's self to Israel at Mount Sinai, that the covenant God made to David and his descendants has been fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is not ashamed to tell everyone about. That God has been faithful. That God has not left us alone. That God has not left the church and the community of believers in Rome alone. That as they are looking at persecution, that as Paul himself will go through series of trials and imprisonment and ultimately death at the hand of the state, that he is confident that this good news has come and is here in Jesus. Because the one who is righteous will live by faith. And this is a Habakkuk quote. And there's a whole bunch to discuss here. And we're coming to the end of our time. But I just want to note that you can, dis- you can translate this as the righteous one will live by faithfulness. That Jesus, Paul is saying, is the righteous one. Not your faithfulness makes you righteous. But that his faithfulness makes him righteous. And because of that, we have been waiting for the Messiah, a faithful, righteous Israelite through whom the covenantal promises will be kept. And Jesus accomplishes what the covenant of Israel was created to achieve. All of those promises that God has made have come true in Jesus. The gospel reveals exactly how God justifies and puts people right with himself. It is through Christ's faithfulness faithfulness. The word in Greek and when it's used in Hebrew always implies an action. It is not about believing in something really hard. It is because of Christ's faithfulness to the Torah. Christ's 
faithfulness to the covenant and Christ's faithfulness unto death on the cross that we can now be part of this covenantal promise. It is through Christ's faithfulness from beginning to end, the righteous one who now lives. And as a result, Paul comes to Rome to say, all creation is set free. It groans. It cries out. The creation longs to be redeemed. But in Christ, it has been set free. And the promise of the yes and the not yet has happened in him. And so the Romans road is not about how sinners get saved and go to heaven. It's about the messianic inheritance in which renewed human beings will be partaking, sharing in God's work of bringing life and order to his creation right now. And this road passes through valleys of sorrow and tears where we ourselves will groan with creation and long for our own final redemption. But this is the road. This is not about you and I getting into a heavenly amusement park in the sky. This is about the full redemption of all of creation. And that is a road that we do not have to be ashamed of. The inheritance is not heaven. It is not far off glory. The gospel, the good news, is the resurrection from the dead with the renewed and rescued creation where we have a role to play now. You have work to do now. I have work to do now as a holy priesthood and where God can come and dwell. So when somebody asks you, are you on the road? Are you on the Romans road? My prayer is that we'll be yes and amen. I want to be on this road that has given me a calling a saving relationship with Jesus, meaning that I have been saved, not from the pit of hell, not in order to get into the amusement park. I have been rescued with all of creation that groans out and longs to be with our creator. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Christ has been resurrected. Christ's faithfulness and to the resurrection of the dead that we are all invited to into, this is how we now live. And Paul is excited in the midst of pain and suffering, in the midst of long roads to be able to tell you and me and this church from long ago that the gospel is good news and it brings life to all who want it. I'll invite the team on up, lead us in our closing song. Jesus invites us to a table, this banqueting table that is set before us that remembers the events of 2,000 years ago, that celebrates the community that we are part of around the world, Christians over and over again today and every day take this meal and we rejoice and practice for that wonderful new Jerusalem that is to come when we will sit with one another and with him again and take this bread, this wine. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, to, broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, 
eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come. All are welcome at this table.